I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people. In recent months, many women have come forward to report sexual harassment and sexual misconduct by colleagues and supervisors in the workplace, leading to a wave of firings, resignations, and lawsuits. These allegations have implicated many high-profile men from Hollywood to Congress and have raised a series of questions. What does the law say about sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in the workplace? What constitutional and legal provisions address these issues? What are the rights of the accused? And what is the role of government in addressing these allegations? Joining us to discuss these incredibly important and contested topics are two of America's leading constitutional experts and leaders in the law of anti-discrimination. Gail Harriet is professor of law at the University of San Diego Law School and a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She's also a contributor to our interactive Constitution essay on the 19th Amendment. And of course, I want We the People listeners to read the 19th Amendment essays in preparation for this podcast. Diane Rosenfeld is a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School and director of the Gender Violence Program at Harvard Law School. She previously served as the senior counsel to the Office of Violence Against Women at the U.S. Department of Justice. Gail, Diane, thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure, Thanks, for, Thanks having for having me. me. Uh, Gail, let's begin with the law of Title VII. How does Title VII define uh, sexual harassment, and what are the relevant provisions that govern many of the recent cases in the news? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Jeff, because Title VII itself, that is the, 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 the words in the statute, don't say anything about uh, sexual harassment. Uh, Title VII, which was passed in 1964 as part of the Civil Rights Act, um, talks about discrimination instead. Um, and it wasn't until a number of years after Title VII was, was, was passed into law um, that some thinkers looking at the statute started to say to themselves, look, you know, this, this may apply to things other than just, you know, refusing to hire women uh, for particular jobs. Um, that when a woman, for example, if a, a, an employer were to say to a, a, a female employee, um, you know, if you don't have sex with me, um, you'll be fired. Um, since he wouldn't have done that to, to a male employee, uh, or at least in most cases he wouldn't have, uh, that that's a form of sex discrimination. So it was more than a decade later when people started to think about these things, and it wasn't until the 1980s uh, that the Supreme Court addressed the subject. Um, and so, uh, strictly speaking, Title VII does not define sex discrimination. It is the courts. I mean, it doesn't, does not define sexual harassment. It is the courts that have attempted to define sexual harassment. Thanks so much for that. And that's very helpful. And, and as you suggest, Title VII says it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And as you say, the courts have defined the meaning of that on the EEOC website. We learn that sexual harassment can occur in a variety of circumstances, including but not limited to uh, the victim does not have to be the person harassed, but be, could be affected by the offensive conduct. 
to make her without economic injury. The harasser's conduct must be unwelcome. And the courts have also noted that the conduct has to be severe and pervasive. Diane, can you fill in some of those gaps and tell us how the courts have defined that language in Title VII and what the definition of unlawful workplace sexual misconduct is? Sure. The key the key points are unwelcome sexual advances and hostile environment. So um, as you said, a witness could bring a case for hostile environment um, if, say, she witnesses sexual harassment going on, but even if she's not the direct recipient of it. Um, and overall, we've made a lot of progress through Title VII. I think we've made, I think it's the most important civil right that women have to equality to the extent that we have any equality in the law whatsoever. Um, and then the analogous provision where we've been able to, in the past several years, make a lot of progress on um, college campuses is under Title IX and the equality provisions there. So it's very important to remember that these, the Title VII and Title IX are civil rights. So, and they're civil rights to equality. And as, as Gail was saying, they weren't originally envisioned with sexual harassment in, in view so that Title IX doesn't also not mention sexual harassment, but it mentions sex discrimination. So you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And very importantly, you have to think about this historically. So in an historic context, Title VII was governing workplaces when when women were starting to enter the workforce again after World War II in, in larger numbers and what kinds of protections they should have once they enter a male-dominated workplace. Analogously, Title IX was originally introduced to let women into colleges because colleges, many colleges, just wouldn't um, ad admit women. So it's a question of getting admitted to a male-dominated space that was, that was, you know, factually only available to men um, was one thing. But then the next thing is, what do you do inside an institution that has been male-dominated to accommodate a new reality where there are women present? So it's not really enough to just open the doors. You really have to have laws that are designed to accommodate and equalize the experience of the women who are now in this male-dominated space. And I think that what we're seeing right now in this just unbelievable, powerful Me Too movement, um, at, you know, in the United States and and across the world, is that we're looking at the reality. We're exposing what's been going on in these male-dominated spaces and really starting to envision a new equality for women and girls. Thanks so much for that. Well, let us focus on the Me Too movement, uh, which, as you powerfully describe, is, uh, represents a sea change in our social norms. And Gail, I, I want to ask you uh, first about the scope of harassment law as it relates to the Me Too movement. Uh, some of the most prominent cases in the Me Too movement, uh, which began with Harvey Weinstein, involve conduct taking place outside the workplace, uh, in some cases for women who were not uh, formerly employees of the accused harassers. Uh, to what degree does Title VII govern these cases, and are there prominent cases in the Me Too movement uh, where people have been fired for conduct that might not be actionable under Title VII? Well, um, first of all, Title VII governs employment, uh, including things like union membership and, and such, but it does not apply everywhere. 
Um, and so if there is not the kind of relationship that is specified in Title VII uh, between um, the, the, the plaintiff and the defendant once it becomes a lawsuit, you know, then Title VII doesn't apply. Um, so some of the Me Too cases that, that we're hearing about don't involve employment relationships or potential employment relationships, don't involve, you know, union membership and such, and therefore Title VII simply doesn't apply. As you put it a minute ago, you know, what we're seeing is a sea change in social norms, but Title VII, you know, is, is a statute. It is law. Um, and it doesn't change in the same way that 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 social norms might change. Um, it can be affected um, by those changes in social norms. But if, if the statute doesn't cover something, then it doesn't cover it, even if people want it to cover it. Um, and that's one thing that, that, that concerns me about Title VII. Um, as I said earlier, it is a statute that prohibits sex discrimination. It doesn't define sexual harassment. And as a result, there, there's a tendency for, for courts to go um, and to be a, a little bit more creative than sometimes you might want them to be. Um, and so even though we are seeing a sea change in social norms, and that, that may or may not be a good thing, um, there are limits uh, to the degree to which we want the statute to be reinterpreted to suit what appears to be um, you know, the, 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 um, you know, what people want today. If people want something different from what was passed in 1964, um, then Congress can pass something new. Um, state legislatures can pass something new. In some cases, administrative agencies can act. In some cases, they can't. Uh, but I'm, I'm a little concerned with the, with the, with the notion that, that, because social norms are changing, that the law automatically changes with it. There are plenty of these allegations that would not rise to the level uh, of sexual harassment as defined by the Supreme Court in the Meritor Savings Bank versus Vincent case. Uh, and as you said, you know, we, we, that sexual harassment is only actionable uh, if it's sufficiently severe or pervasive uh, to alter the conditions of the victim's employment and create an abusive working environment. That's a pretty high standard. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Diane, let's focus on some of the cases, the Me Too cases that might not be formally covered by Title VII. Uh, Glenn Thrush, the star New York Times reporter who was suspended, was accused of inappropriate sexual behavior outside the workplace. Uh, some of uh, the women were colleagues and others uh, were not. Uh, Ryan Lizza from The New Yorker is alleged to have had a uh, consensual or non-consensual relationship outside the workplace. Um, should Title VII be expanded so that it covers these cases, or is it appropriate for employee, employers to fire employees for conduct that might not be formally actionable under Title VII but nevertheless violate social norms? Great question. I think that outside of Title VII, um, employers have a duty to have a workplace where everybody has equal access to the ability to participate as a professional or as a worker or in whatever capacity they are hired to participate in the workplace free of discrimination. So I would say that um, an employer, say that it's an employment at will situation and it's less than 15 people and it doesn't um, technically um, apply the Title VII doesn't technically apply. I I still would um, 
encourage the idea that employers have the responsibility to maintain a discrimination-free workplace. We are at this very interesting point where social where social media and the movement um, has outpaced what has been possible in court, but it's also very important, I think, to remember that without the backbone of Title IX and without the, the, the jurisprudential background of all the case development of, you know, since Meritor versus Vincent in 1986, we wouldn't have the social movement, I don't think. I don't think we'd have the concept of rights that is the backbone of this, of this social movement. And I think that to the extent that Title VII is limited or wouldn't reach some of the cases that came out in the Me Too movement, um, as I said, not only could employers voluntarily and, and rightfully enforce standards of non-discrimination, especially based on sex and race, but also we should be thinking, and we are thinking um, in the legal circles, um, about, about different legislation, for example, an equal rights amendment you know, where, where there are other ways to, to get at this notion that women are actually equal and are entitled to be, to participate in all areas of life free of sex discrimination. And, you know, the most amazing thing that's coming out in these stories every day, like the, the story about Ford Motor Company today and all the women, almost all of them were women of color, um, really exposing what had been going on and how it limited their abilities to, um, to make a decent living wage at Ford and, and the widespread sexual harassment and assault that went on, it's, it's just astounding what's been going on. So now we're at this point where, where we have identified and located this problem and it's not, it's not going to work anymore to divide the cases into individual cases and, and treat them as aberrational. Like this is just a one-off terrible case, or this is one Harvey Weinstein. It's, um, it's time to really look at this in the in, in in the comprehensive total world way that it's happening and that it has happened and to really challenge it. And I think that um, a lot of men are really looking at their behavior and saying, you know, how can I be a better a better witness or a better person or have I done things that I wasn't really conscious of but but that have intimidated a fellow employee. And I think a lot of, I think this is just an incredibly important um, and powerful moment to move forward on, on many issues that I've worked on for years and years and years, uh, most particularly sexual violence and how to eliminate it through a culture of sexual respect. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Gail, do you agree or not with Diane that uh, d uh, employers should be able to fire employees for conduct that might not currently be actionable under Title VII. In the New Yorker case, Ryan Lizza said, I'm unable to find any workplace policy that would govern uh, relationships outside the workplace with non-employees. Uh, do you think that some of these cases are going too far? And, 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 should, uh, and, and do employees uh, like uh, Lizza have any due process uh, recourse against employers who fire them for conduct that might not currently be actionable under Title VII? Okay, if it's not currently actionable under Title VII, you know, your example where, where, where something occurs off the workplace with a, a sexual partner who is not an employee um, at the same company, but something that, that, that people at the company think of as, as inappropriate for some reason. You know, the background rule against which Title VII um, applies 
is usually that of a presumption of employment at will, meaning that both the employer and the employee um, can, you know, make their decisions for to, to, to stay or to leave for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all. So an employer can, can fire an employee for good reason, bad reason, no reason at all, as long as it's not one of the reasons um, listed in Title VII or in similar statutes. Um, and in that respect, then, you know, legally, uh, unless there's some contractual provision uh, that requires the employer to do to do more, uh, as there is, for example, uh, with tenured academics. Um, unless that applies, then you know, if it if it's if, if if the conduct is not within Title VII, not within any other statute, that doesn't mean the person can't be fired for it if that's what the employer wants to do. So if you've got an at-will relationship, not governed by any employment discrimination law or other law that, that says to the contrary, uh, there aren't due process rights. Uh, as I said, unless there's some agreement in, in the contract, whether that is a written contract or some other kind of contract um, between the employer and the employee. Uh, so it isn't that, that, that and the employer can't fire an employee for doing something that isn't covered by Title VII. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Diane, uh, your response to Gail's thoughts and, and also uh, to the degree, as, as, as she suggests, that uh, some of the Me Too conduct uh, may not be currently covered by Title VII, should the substantive definition of, unla- of unlawful employment practice under t- Title VII be expanded so that it does cover some of these current cases? I, I think it should. I think that the, the notion that underlies the development of, of sexual harassment law Um, grows out of the following problem. And I'm going to read you the opening sentence of Sexual Harassment of Working Women by Catherine McKinnon in 1979. So she conceived of with a clinic um, that she was a collective for women that she was working with um, in 1976, the concept of sexual harassment as a tort, as a civil right. And this sentence just kind of says it all. Quote, Intimate violation of women by men is sufficiently pervasive in American society as to be nearly invisible. Contained by internalized and structural forms of power, it has been nearly inaudible. Conjoined with men's control over women's material survival, as in the home or on the job, or over women's learning and educational advancement in school, it has become institutionalized. So we're starting from the realistic point of how sexual harassment and sexual discrimination can affect and limit women's opportunities in education in the workplace and and just in life more generally. So I think that Title Title VII and Title IX could be usefully expanded to capture that. So for example, I was sexually harassed by a law professor at a Chicago university when I was originally going to go on the market for the American Association of Law Schools has these conferences and, and young lawyers or you know law students. Um, I'd been practicing for a few years, but I'd gone back to um, to do more graduate work at Harvard. And, um, and I was in Chicago for the conference and I met with um, this person because he was the chair of the recruitment committee for, um, for a law school that I taught at as an adjunct in Chicago. And he and I uh, met for coffee, so I, you know, so he could give me advice about what schools, you know, I should be talking to. I told him which schools um, 
which schools had chosen to interview me. He had contacts at each of the schools. He was very interested in my research. And then he asked me out to dinner. And I said, I don't think it would be appropriate to have dinner with you. Um, I wouldn't want any special treatment, nor would I want to be, you know, he's asking me, like, I'm a feminist law scholar. And I've just told him about all of my work. And now he and he's asking me out to dinner. So I explained to him that I didn't think it was appropriate. And then he said, well, I think it's appropriate. I said, I know you do, because you just asked me out to dinner. And then I was so infuriated. I left the meeting and then I withdrew and I didn't go through the interview process because he knew people at every place that I was interviewing. And I also got more information that he had sexually harassed somebody, a student, um, that one of his students. And, um, and I dropped out of the process at that point. And, you know, I don't know how that affected my career, but it certainly threw me off of a track that I had been considering. So would that fall under Title IX? No, he wasn't my employer, but he had power over me and he wound up limiting my rights. So I'm not saying that I need a special statute to go back and um, have him investigated or impose consequences on him, but um, but that's the problem. It's like when we when we start thinking about this and and it's almost all women have some kind of similar experience. So, so what should be, what should we be talking about in, in social culture about change so that men don't have that power over women's lives and opportunities and that when they exercise that power in a discriminatory way, women have standing and voice and credibility to stand up and say, no, that's unfair. That's an imposition of my civil right to participate in this society. Thank you so much for sharing that powerful story. Gail, if you could uh, share your reactions uh, to the story and also uh, tell us about your recent testimony before the House Judiciary Committee on the problem of executive overreach in educational and workplace policies, where you suggested that far from being too narrow, the definition of harassment in Title IX and other statutes might be too broad. You noted that the OCR's official material include telling sexual or dirty jokes, spreading sexual rumors, and so forth. And you suggested that this broad definition might clash with the First Amendment. So the question is, just as Gail has suggested, that the definition of harassment might be too narrow. Tell us why you think it might be too broad. Well, first, I want to comment on on Diane's story, because I think it's a good example of the kinds of misunderstandings that arise. the notion that being asked out to dinner, I'm sure there are details to Diane's story that she hasn't disclosed that make it more understandable why she was upset. But when I hear a story like that, I think if someone had asked me out to dinner, it wouldn't have occurred to me that this was was, was something that was inappropriate. Vice President Mike Pence has been severely criticized because he says he's made it a rule not to go out to dinner uh, with women without his wife present, which people thought was, was really very inappropriate for failing uh, to have dinner uh, with female associates. Um, And so it's very, very difficult. You know, there was a CNN poll a few, um, it's actually quite a few years ago at this point, Um, but in that poll, 57% of men and 52% of women uh, agreed, and I'm quoting it here, we have gone too far in making common interactions between employees into cases of sexual harassment. And one of the problems, again, goes back to what I was saying earlier, that, that the 
Title VII itself really doesn't define sexual harassment. Instead, we have court decisions, we have EEOC guidances, even though the EEOC is not authorized uh, by Congress uh, to promulgate substantive um, regulations, they instead use these guidances um, that are not supposed to have um, any legal legal um, side to them, but nevertheless influence how employers work um, and how and how courts you know react um, and very ill-defined um, guidelines for what sexual harassment is. And I think indeed to to go on to your your the second part of your question here. Um, we do have a problem here now where where the EEOC and the Department of Education um, and the courts um, have all um, created a world in which sexual harassment is viewed as the cumulative effect of many, many things, which may include things like um, dirty jokes um, or, you know, long looks uh, or statements that that um, that may touch on sex, and we've gotten to the point where employers, in order to avoid lawsuits, are telling their employees not to say things um, that that they would have a First Amendment right to say. Now, it is very important to note that employers themselves, other than state um, and federal um, employers are not governed by the First Amendment. They don't have to allow for free speech um, in the workplace. It's perfectly appropriate for a private employer to say something like, I don't want any of my employees to talk about politics um, on the job. But what is not appropriate is for the federal government to tell employers that they must tell their employees, for example, not to talk about politics um, on the job. Well, what has happened with the development of sexual harassment law is that the message is being sent um, to employers that they need to crack down on, on all sorts of statements that bear on sex. Um, and these employers might not have done that on their own, but they feel obligated because they know that sexual harassment is going to be defined by the cumulative effect of many statements, jokes that would be, be protected by, by the First Amendment, statements about policy, you know, statements about, about you know, all sorts of issues. Um, insofar as Title VII, and for that matter, Title IX, insofar as they are pressuring employers to pressure employees, then you've got some real First Amendment issues going on here. Many thanks for that. Diane, your response to Gail's suggestion that a broad interpretation of Title VII might clash with the First Amendment. No, I think that, I, I appreciate your concern, Gail, um, definitely. But um, if you think about the First Amendment, it's not that you can say whatever you want to say all the time because, because you can verbally create a hostile environment of sex or race discrimination. So it can be speech that is in one sense protected by the First Amendment, but it's speech, discriminatory speech is more like discriminatory action, and that's why it's it's actionable. And I don't think that we've gone 
too far and that we're shutting down sexual conversations at work that are appropriate at work. I mean, and as you said, Gail, it's a, a constellation of factors in both Title VII and Title IX cases. It's not just one dirty joke um, that everybody laughed at. It's it's a it's an environment. So the term hostile environment is in in my experience it always interpreted to to be the cumulative factor. So so it's it's what has happened in that environment that has created um, hostility and that is limiting the rights of certain people to participate equally. So think of it as a sex equality statute. And that's really what it's about. So dirty jokes, um, you know, if I'm in a room with, I'm at a meeting and I'm the only woman at the meeting and it's a high level strategic meeting on litigation strategy. And, and I'm actually thinking of a particular meeting that I was at a few years ago like this. And, um, and men start telling jokes, you know, I'm the only woman there and I'm going to be affected differently by sexist jokes than the men in the room who are trying to create an environment that is um, just not so welcoming for me. And um, and I'm very fortunate that I'm a, a very strong person and I can usually talk back to these things and I'm not afraid of being unemployed, but that's only because I'm white and very privileged. So, but there are so many other people who like, if, if I were a woman of color, a single mom, and I'm working at Ford, for example, to go back to this astounding, uh, set of cases that were, uh, discussed in today's New York times. Um, and I'm really dependent on my income. I don't have the same ability to speak back to that. So, so it's, it's right in a society where you're promoting equality that the employers are responsible for creating an equal work environment that's free from hostility and free from sex discrimination. And I think that that takes affirmative steps. I don't think that like if, if schools don't do anything, for example, to promote cultures of sexual respect on their campuses, those cultures are not going to happen on their own. I think that, you know, given the rate of sexual assault on campus, schools have to do something affirmative to to really talk of, to their students about what sexual respect means and and likewise in the workplace that you know employers need to have open conversations about how to how men and women um, interact and how to do so respectfully in a way that doesn't um, limit one's rights and it's not it's not rocket science people shouldn't be afraid of talking about these issues and I think that now we should really seize this moment in a positive way and, and look at how we treat each other and have open conversations about how we can do better. And really in this moment, listen to all women and really listen and then start from there in creating legal policy and potentially new laws to address it. Thanks so much for this very productive uh, uh, d d discussion. Gail, are there examples, prominent examples in the Me Too movement that have been in the news that you think have gone too far that involve more like uh, uh, jokes or unwelcome comments rather than physical contact? And, and, and what do you think that the law should do in response? Well, actually, I think the, the most interesting example um, in, in recent months was actually the Google case involving James Damore, which wasn't really a, a case of, of a dirty joke or anything. Instead, it was a very substantive uh, discussion 
Uh, you will recall in that case, an engineer uh, wrote a memorandum uh, that he entitled Google's Ideological Echo Chamber. And contrary to what some media outlets claimed, it was not in any way, shape, or manner an anti-diversity or misogynistic screed or screed of any kind. Um, in fact, it went out of its way to suggest helpful ways to make employment at Google more attractive to women. Uh, and it was intended to be an internal discussion memo, but it dared to question whether women's underrepresentation in the soft in software engineering uh, and in leadership positions at Google is wholly due to bias against them. Instead, it argued that you know, and pointing to a large body of scientific evidence that fewer women than men actually aspire to be software engineers. It's not always a, a job that, that both men and women uh, are equally interested in. He acknowledged that there's plenty of variation among men and among women, but that as a group, women tend to be more interested in more people-oriented jobs. And like, you know, while that doesn't say anything about particular women or particular men, it's a true statement, um, and it's certainly worth talking about. Uh, but instead, the author of the memo was fired, and one of the arguments made for his firing was that Title VII demands it, that he was creating a hostile atmosphere for women, and that if he isn't fired, then Google will be sued by some of its women employees. Um, you know, there may have been other things going on in that case, uh, but the point is that that if we can't have a, a, a rational discussion of whether or not um, bias is, is the total reason for underrepresentation of women at Google. We can't have that discussion. Um, that's a very serious problem. Many thanks for that, Diane. Your response to, to Gail's thoughts on the Google case, did it go too far or not? Um, well, I don't think it did. Um, he also was talking about the Ku Klux Klan and slightly defending them. And um, he was found by Google to have been creating um, hostility in the workplace and in a workplace that is trying affirmatively to um, promote gender and race equality. So I don't think that that's going too far. And I think that um, Gail's points remind me a bit of uh, when Larry Summers said that that girls and women don't have the innate capabilities of uh, math and science that, that boys do. And then he suffered um, pretty serious consequences from that, including um, not being president of Harvard anymore. Um, and what Gail describes as reality is um, is one way to look at it, but a more textured way to look at it, I would argue respectfully, is to look at the reasons for that. So if women are valued for care or for people-oriented things and uh, harassed in school for doing better on math tests than boys, for example, like I was at one point, um, then we might stay away from math and science. So, um, so President Obama's Council on Women and Girls, for example, did a lot of really substantive work digging into um, STEM questions and how to equalize equalize girls' learning in math and science because math and science are, are areas where boys are um, can actually, you know, humiliate and harass girls to just not feel at all welcome and not at all be welcome to participate. Thanks so much for that. Um, Gail, let's uh, take another uh, moment on the standards for evaluating these <coughs> allegations. You have testified that the um, – Department of Education's decision under President Obama to reduce the standard of proof for 
uh, Title IX cases from uh, the clear and convincing evidence standard to the preponderance of the evidence standard was wrong, and indeed the Trump Department of Education has has gone back to a higher standard. But if we turn to the Title VII context, uh, are any due process obligations, rights, or interests of the employer at all to investigate these allegations? What standard should they be investigated under? And what would you advise employers to do as they decide whether or not to take workplace action against uh, employees who are accused of, of sexual misconduct in the workplace? I think the thing with, with uh, the Title IX guidance, um, you got to remember in that case, the Department of Education uh, was ordering um, colleges and universities to use the preponderance of the evidence standard. Uh, and they were doing so not through a rulemaking process subject to notice and comment. They were doing it with a guidance. Um, and a guidance is something that, that, that can only be used um, to interpret the actual statute itself, Title IX, which, of course, doesn't say anything about this. You can read Title IX, you know, backwards, forwards, diagonally. There's nothing about standard of proof. So they weren't, in, they weren't interpreting Title IX. Uh, they were extending it. Um, and for that reason, um, I, it was, I think, a, a rather severe case um, of executive overreach. Um, on the other hand, um, with Title VII, no one is telling employers what standard to use um, in determining whether or not to 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 um, to fire an empl employee for again good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all. Um, and so, I think in, with the Title VII case, um, there may well be contracts between the employee and the employer that limit the employer's right to 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 um, to dismiss an employee without due process. Uh, but it's going to be governed by that underlying contract, uh, which is going to be presumed to be at will um, unless unless it says otherwise, unless there's some reason to believe otherwise, uh, as there is with some, some, some employment relationships, but not with others. So I don't think the due process issue comes up um, in the same way with Title VII as it did in Title IX. And Title IX is basically an issue of administrative law, the executive branch, uh, purporting to find um, somewhere in the statute that says absolutely nothing about any of this, um, that the standard has to be preponderance of the evidence. Prior to that guidance, um, some colleges and universities had used a clear and convincing standard, which I think is a better idea in these cases. It's a very serious thing when you dismiss a, a, a when you expel a student from a college or university, that's going to have a profound effect on their life. Um, and Schools should be permitted to use clear and convincing if that's what they prefer and should not be pressured um, into using preponderance of the evidence um, when the statute doesn't require that um, and the Department of Education had not attempted to promulgate a regulation subject to notice and comment that would have said to the contrary. Many thanks for that. Um, Diane, why do you believe that uh, the preponderance of the evidence standard is a better one for Title IX than clear and convincing evidence? And what advice would you give to employers in deciding what standards to apply to accused employees in the workplace? Very clearly, Jeff. Preponderance of the evidence is the legal standard used in civil rights cases. And I want to clarify a couple um, misperceptions about what's 
gone on in the Title IX sphere. So one thing is that in the Obama administration, in the Dear Colleague Letter of 2011, it interpreted guidance that had gone through notice and comment in 2001. And nobody objected to it in 2001 because OCR wasn't enforcing these cases. And it wasn't until President Obama and his administration started really paying attention to what's going on with students. What? It, why is there so much campus sexual assault and what can we do about it? And here's the power of our office at OCR to, um, to address campus sexual assault. And, and President Obama, as you probably know, appointed, created a White House task force on protecting students from sexual assault and heard from all sides, from so many stakeholders all around the country before making various policies that he did and his administration did on Title, on Title IX. So, like I said, preponderance of the evidence is the standard in civil rights cases, and we all know that. So it's very important to keep in mind the civil rights nature of Title VII and Title IX as opposed to the criminal justice system. And the reason I think that so many critics are raising the this due process claim is because something is actually happening or has been happening on college campuses to hold offenders responsible for sexual misconduct and sexual assault. And, and they don't want that to happen. Now, if you take a step back and think about the Me Too movement and, and read all these cases and really think about it, a lot of it is credibility questions. And a lot of women don't come forward because they're afraid that, or they're told in so many cases, well, it's just a he said, she said, you have no proof, no one will believe you. And in fact, there was a, a really interesting New York Times talk last, I think it was about a week and a half ago with Ashley Judd and the authors of the, the main authors of the Me Too stories. Of, and the background was, a picture of women's a woman's mouth with a zipper and then it said he said and i just thought that was so right on of like that he said you should be silenced and we have to pay attention to all the ways that men try to silence women when women come forward and dr jennifer freed for example from university of oregon developed this phrase through her research called darvo which stands for deny, attack, reverse victim offender. And that's what so many accused men do is first they deny it and then there's proof. So then they try to attack and discredit the people coming forward. And you saw that very clearly and very systematically in the Harvey Weinstein case where he was even digging up, like having private investigators pose as feminist authors, as investigators trying to get dirt on people who were coming forward against him. And, and it's such a classic thing that we're now starting to, to realize is just systemic. And you have to take that into account when you're considering these cases and the credibility context, con the credibility contests in these cases. So if you're talking about credibility, preponderance of the evidence is the only standard that treats the parties as equal coming to the hearing. Any other standard that requires more proof is is inherently saying, we don't believe you, person coming forward. You need to have extra proof. Now, in the criminal justice system, 
where the burden of proof is appropriately beyond a reasonable doubt, it's because in the criminal justice system, a person can lose their liberty. So of course they're entitled to due process, but it's quite a different calculation in a Title VII or a Title IX case where you are losing, in a Title VII case, you could lose your job and your economic opportunities. But in a Title um, in a Title IX case, you might get kicked out of school and have to transfer or take a year off um, or reform your behavior, which would be the, the best outcome. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Gail, your response to Diane's thought about the substantive standard of proof for evaluating these harassment claims. Well, Diane's argument is is that preponderance of the evidence has always been the standard for civil rights cases, uh, meaning civil rights lawsuits. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the potential case uh, of, in a Title IX case, for example, a, a student who feels that she has been sexually harassed uh, or assaulted versus the university. Uh, we're talking about the decision to expel a student who has been accused uh, of, of inappropriate conduct of some sort. Um, and that has always been up to the colleges and universities. There is nothing in Title IX itself uh, that says anything uh, about what the standard should be uh, for that kind of, of, of procedure. Um, and while the Department of Education might arguably have the ability to promulgate a notice and comment regulation of that sort, that's not what they did. Uh, what they did was simply declare uh, without any input, um, without the procedures that are, that are required for issuing a regulation, um, they simply told colleges and universities, this is what they have to do. Um, and in the past, some universities have used clear and convincing. That used to be a very popular standard uh, until uh, the Department of Education started saying that it had to be preponderance of the evidence. And then schools started, you know, going off in another direction um, and going, you know, doing what they thought they were required to do. Uh, but this was clearly um, an overreach in terms of the administrative law. The other thing I wanted to say here is that uh, there are lots and lots of cases uh, at this point, where male students uh, have been been um, railroaded um, in these these cases involving um, accusations of sexual assault, um, I can give you just one example here. I've changed the names here, but this is an example involving Amherst College. Um, college student Alice, and again, I've just made up that name, uh, was making out with her roommate's boyfriend, Michael, in the common area at the dorm while her roommate was away for the weekend. Okay, so nice here. And they are both drunk, as is often the case um, in these kinds of, of situations. They then move uh, to her room where Alice performs oral sex on Michael. She then texts a friend that she's done something really stupid. Uh, and implies that she was the initiator of the encounter, encounter. She says that she hopes Michael can make up a good lie because nobody in the common room where they started is going to believe that they didn't have sex. But the roommate does find out, of course, and Alice ends up ostracized by her circle of friends. Later, after a lot of prodding by the Title IX coordinator, she files a formal complaint uh, and Michael is hurriedly hauled before a panel of three very ideological-driven college administrators. He has no access or knowledge of all the text messages that would have exonerated him. And he gets expelled. Only later does he find out about them, but Amherst 
refuses to reopen the case, despite the wealth of evidence um, that this was consensual. I mean, there are lots and lots of cases like this. This happens to be one uh, where the text messages um, are you know, available there and can be seen um, and exonerate um, Michael in that case. But, you know, I've got a lot more of these cases. Um, and we got to remember um, that, that, you know, this is supposed to be a two-way street. Um, it's a, a law against sex discrimination. Uh, isn't it sex discrimination uh, if men are told that we believe the women uh, no matter what? That sounds like sex discrimination to me. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating and important discussion about the scope of Title Seven, And uh, the first one is to uh, you, Diane. Uh, please tell our listeners uh, whether you think that uh, the scope of liability under Title Seven should be expanded or contracted and why. Thanks, Jeff. And, and thanks for having me on the show. And thank you, Gail. It's been really nice to have this conversation with you at this incredibly unprecedented moment in history. I think that if you look at the purpose of Title VII and Title IX and how they've been interpreted jurisprudentially to promote sex equality in the workplace and in education, then it is appropriate to expand that understanding to be able to address cases of hostile environment in education or at work. And I think that schools can do this in a way that does not infringe on the First Amendment in any way. I think that having real conversations when you're creating a community at a campus or in a workplace about sexual respect can go a long way toward doing that and toward eliminating the current climate of rampant sex discrimination that we see that I work with every day and that has been coming out in the United States in so many different industries and and also all around the world. So I think that um, we should be looking at, you know, as legal scholars, we should be looking at what we have available. I did want to clarify an important uh, point about the current OCR policy, which did not say that they're going back to a higher standard. They gave schools the, the choice of keeping the preponderance of the evidence standard or possibly using clear and convincing. But a lot of schools are using the proper preponderance of the evidence standard and, and not doing it because of Title IX liability fears, but doing it because it's the right thing to do and because the students are demanding it. And I know that there's a lot of concern about Title IX, about cases that have gone wrong. Um, but every case that uh, Secretary DeVos referred to when she changed, when she pulled the 2011 guidance from the Obama administration was in itself a Title IX violation. So it didn't mean that Title IX was flawed. It meant that schools still need help and guidance on implementing the sex discrimination prohibitions under Title IX to create safe and equal learning environments. And I will just say that um, it's also really important because although the consequences of getting kicked out of school for someone who's found responsible after an investigation um, for sexual assault is serious, but it's also the case that we have seen so many more cases of what I call constructive expulsion in schools where a victim cannot 
access her educational opportunities anymore in the wake of a sexual assault. Gail, please tell our listeners whether you think that a liability for sexual misconduct under Title VII should be expanded or contracted, and why? Well, I'm not sure that I would say that it's a matter of expanded or contracted. Uh, one thing I think is important is to remember that these statutes, Title VII and Title, Title IX, are about sex discrimination. Um, and if it's not sex discrimination, uh, then it's not a violation of Title VII or Title IX. Um, and it's important to see that these are two-way streets, um, that just as it's possible to have an intimidating atmosphere for, for women, it's possible to have an intimidating atmosphere for men. Um, and a good example of this is uh, in Title IX, it has become a very common statement uh, on campus that you should believe the woman. Um, and, you know, it is true that Sometimes women have been disbelieved when they make claims uh, that they have been sexually violated in some way um, and that this is a problem. But it's also true that men have sometimes been disbelieved. Um, and we have to be much more careful than, than, than we are to make sure that the proper balance is be, being, being um, held here. Um, and I don't think it is right now, uh, particularly with Title IX on campuses. Um, and I, I, I commend uh, Secretary DeVos for having withdrawn um, the, the guidance that the Obama administration sent out um, on what they, they referred to as sexual violence on campus. Um, I think that, that we need to rethink some of the procedures that were involved um, in that guidance. I think we need to allow schools more flexibility um, and we need to be much more mindful uh, of due process. One of the things that Diane said earlier um, was that, that expelling a student from college is not like putting someone in, in prison. And that's true. Um, but she suggested that it was no big deal. And that is not true. Um, it's not simply a matter of, well, you can always go to another school. Uh, a student who has an expulsion due to Title IX sexual violence on his record is not going to be able to apply to, to another school and just get in. Schools are very mindful of their possible liability for Title IX violations. And just imagine what the lawsuit is going to look like um, if a, a, a student can say that, that this university admitted a student that they knew um, had been expelled from another school on account of, of, of sexual assault. So that's why due process is really important. I have spoken to a lot of the young men uh, who have been accused uh, of sexual assault in Title IX cases, and some of the stories will just break your heart. It is absolutely clear that an, uh, quite a few young men uh, have been railroaded in these cases, and we need to focus a lot more on due process uh, than we have so far. Thank you so much, Diane Rosenfeld and Gail Harriet, for an illuminating, substantive, and really engaging discussion about uh, one of the most important uh, social movements of our time. Gail, Diane, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thanks. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. To learn more about this week's topic, visit our podcast resource page at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate forward slash podcasts. The resource page contains notes, guest bios, 
related interactive Constitution essays, and more. It is a cornucopia for lifelong learning about the Constitution. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for select America's Town Hall programs. In-person and on-demand credit is now available in Pennsylvania with additional states to come. What an exciting and entertaining way of gaining your laborious continuing legal education credits if you are a lawyer. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Also, please be sure to rate We the People on iTunes and other platforms that helps other people learn about our great educational work. And remember, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity, engagement, passion, and love for learning of people like you who are inspired by our mission of nonpartisan constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work and solidify your engagement and become a member of the National Constitution Center's family of lifelong learners. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.